Uh, so grateful to be with you all this morning as we continue in our Sacred Garden series in the Song of Solomon. Um, just by a quick show of hands, how many of you remember going to a school dance at any point in your life? Just by a quick show of hands? All right. So uh, I remember the very first school dance that I went to. It was at Eagle Hills Elementary um, and uh, in Eagle, Idaho. And it's where you find most Hawaiians. Um, and... Um, and I remember walking in to this incredibly romantic environment. You know, the cafeteria had been freshly mopped, and uh, there was still a scent of, you know, fried chicken sandwich and pickles in the air. It was hot, I'm telling you what. And uh, I remember walking in, and of course, all the girls were on one side, and all the dudes were on the other. Do you guys remember this time of life? You remember that? Okay, so walk into that room, and I remember thinking, this must be the birthplace of the word awkward, um, because it was so awkward. Everybody was just standing and staring at each other, and the teachers were like, you guys should dance. And it's like, no, right? All the guys are like four foot nothing, and all the chicks are five foot six. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and they, when you are dancing, it's like this, you know? It's just so, it was terrible, right? Um, I will say, though, it was pretty fun, because I think I remember the best part of that, that entire day was like everybody dancing to uh, Will Smith, uh, getting jiggy with it. Um, Speaking of getting jiggy with it, um, we've been in Song of Solomon. <laughs> it's okay, you can laugh. I'll give you permission. No, dances in high school were just kind of like a rite of passage. And I remember my favorite dance ever was actually when I went to prom my senior year. Uh, so I had the benefit of having a dad who played uh, in 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 the NFL, and he was actually a pastor as well, and he had, happened to be discipling a guy who was a lineman for the Seahawks. And so my senior year of prom, I worked up enough courage after multiple weeks of having this guy over at our house, and I remember asking him, I said, hey, Wayne, can I borrow your Lincoln Navigator, which was like pearl white, and it was totally tricked out. It had big screen TVs in it. It had 22-inch rims, and I asked him, can I borrow it to take me and my friends to prom? And Wayne was six foot six, 320 pounds, big Samoan dude. He made the rock look like the pebble, okay? And he said, yeah, but if you scratch it, they won't find you. So I, I went like 20 miles an hour on the highway, like just, you know, sweating and just racked with my nerves. I couldn't, we had a great time, but I remember a, just a wonderful moment of being able to park that Lincoln Navigator in his car and then hand it to him. And I felt like I had just been set free from like a death sentence, okay? But it was fun. Dances were oftentimes fun, and sometimes they got a little bit out of control. And just so we're all aware, I'm a huge advocate of like group dates, all right? And all the parents said, Amen. Okay, so, so just so you don't walk out of here, teenagers, and think, oh, pastor said I can like, go to dances. and like, no, Easy, all right? So the reason why I'm talking about dances is because they're not just a rite of passage that we have in elementary school or in middle school or in high school. Dancing is actually just a part of life. And in, in fact, dancing in a romantic sense is actually one of those things that we get to experience and do. At weddings, we actually see, you know, the first dance that the couple gets to have. And in the Song of Solomon, we're going to jump in and we're actually going to see what's called the Dance of Mahanaim. And this is a beloved, romantic, erotic dance of a woman and her husband. Okay, so we're going to be in Song of Solomon, chapter 7. 
And I'm going to ask you that you turn there, you find it, whether it's a digital or physical copy, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. We're going to be jumping into this dance, and we're going to see kind of the steps that they take in this dance and what we can glean from it. But as you make your way to the passage this morning, just kind of want to remind us where we've been. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how they had a conflict and they resolved the conflict. And last week, we looked at some of those resolutions that we are called to commit ourselves to. And as we were looking at committing ourselves to those resolutions, we saw that there was strengthening and stabilizing that happens when we actually commit to one another after conflict. That it's a good thing to resolve conflict. And when we come back together, we're committed once again to praising, to celebrating what we have in our beloved. And as we saw last week, Solomon continued to bless his bride through how he described and praised her. And that's not a one-off. We've seen it consistently. And it's going to get pretty intense and pretty detailed today. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon chapter 7, I'm going to ask you to stand Uh, alongside of me as I read God's word for us this morning. So if you're a guest here at Grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. So we believe that the entire Bible, all 66 books are breathed out by God. They're for our full life of faith and living. Song of Solomon, we're actually gonna be starting at the end of chapter six and reading the entirety of chapter seven. God's word says this, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. He responds by saying, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns of a gazelle, two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bat-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and how pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of a vine and the scent of your breath like apples, and may your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth their fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, oh my beloved. This is God's word, you may be seated. As you take your seats, Let's go ahead and pray together before we unpack this passage. Father, we come before you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It truly is a guide unto our path. And Father, you and I both know that I sin, that I fall short often of your glory. And yet, Jesus, I thank you that you are my righteousness. Jesus, I pray that you would make much of yourself this morning, that we would see you as our beloved prince, our beloved king, who has come to give us love in its fullness. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me, that I would speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the encouragement of this body, the strengthening of relationships and marriage, and for the advancement of your kingdom, Jesus. 
We pray all of this in your mighty name and all God's people said. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the five steps to delighting in maturing love. Five steps to delight in maturing love. So if we think about a dance, we think about the steps that are taking place in a dance and how you move in a dance, we're going to be looking at these steps that we can take in order to delight in maturing love. The first step is to actually delight in the dance of love. In verse 6, chapter 6, 13b, the last part that we read is, uh, Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. And then we hear Solomon say something. And he talks about this dance. The dance that we're actually going to witness today is actually her having this very erotic dance in front of her husband. And here's how we know this. He says, why should you look upon the Shulamite? He's talking to others. He's talking to everybody else. And he's like, why are you looking upon her like a dance between two armies? Now, this phrase, between two armies, two armies is the word, is the Hebrew word, mahanaim. And this is called by many scholars, the dance of mahanaim. And what's happening is he's saying you can't take your eyes away from it. So we have a phrase we say commonly like it's like a train wreck, right? You just can't take your eyes. I didn't want to look, but I just can't, I can't take my eyes off of it. So what he's saying is she's dancing before me. She's mine. Why are you guys all looking? She is completely, he's completely transfixed on her. He's like mesmerized by this dance that she has. And and as we're going to see all throughout chapter 7, this sets up for us this powerful, beautiful imagery that we can glean how we're to delight in maturing love. So number one, again, delight in the dance of love. Here's what we want to talk about. When we think about dancing, okay, and we're talking about Mahanaim, there's a couple different solutions that people have. They're trying to figure out, was this a place? Was this an actual dance? What was going on? Mahanaim was a town, but it wasn't really referenced until later on in biblical history. And so scholars are like, well, it's not necessarily referring to the town. This isn't something that you would want to actually ascribe to your bride. So it can't be the town. It can't be the city. There was also a sword dance, a Syrian sword dance that they could say, well, maybe it was the Syrian sword dance that he's talking about. That's, it's not that because that didn't come for 400, 500 years later. So it can't be this Syrian sword dance. And so most scholars look at this and say, this was a dance. She was dancing before him. And it's, it's him saying, I'm totally transfixed. Now, here's what, here's what I want to do. I want to talk a little bit about if we kind of extrapolate and we pull back from this entire passage, what we need to recognize is that God's not prude. He's not shy about sex. He's not shy about sexuality. He blessed it. He designed it. He gave it to us as a gift. And when Adam first encounters Eve, the very first marriage, the very first husband and wife, very first groom and bride, Adam sees her and he sings a song to her. And he blesses her with his words. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He can't help. Something inside of him breaks to the point where he wants to sing to her. God did not make Eve for Adam for pragmatic purposes, but specifically for the purpose of delight and enjoyment. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But Adam and Eve, in their first encounter and interaction, what we see is delight and pleasure and joy in that relationship. So so here's what we need to be careful of, okay? When we talk about love and we talk about Sex and sexuality, we need to be very careful that we don't see God's holiness and make him harsh. What do I mean by that? 
when we see the back and forth playfulness throughout this entire Song of Solomon book, we see him singing to her and her responding with affection, her singing to him and him responding with affection. This is a beautiful dance that God has intended for us to enjoy and benefit from, to delight in and to glorify him. But here's what can happen. We can read in scripture where God specifically prohibits and puts down a law in regards to what sexual immorality can look like, and we can start to draw lines that God himself did not draw, and that's called legalism. That's called legalism. There may be some who have been uncomfortable with the Song of Solomon and going through it. So what I want to do is I want to just pull back and think about the fact that essentially what we have described here in the dance of Mahanaim is a strip tease that a wife is performing for her husband. But here's what I want to say. God is not uncomfortable with us reading through this and celebrating it. He's not just not uncomfortable. He put it in here for our good. Here's what can tend to happen. Here's how legalism works. Let's just say, for instance, that God said, don't go in the road. Legalism will say, you know what? There's a sidewalk before the road. So if it's not good to go in the road, we don't want anybody to even get close to going into the road. So we're going to actually put up a fence in front of the sidewalk. And a generation will abide by that fence. Don't go near the fence. Don't go near the fence. Don't go near the fence. Second generation will come up after that. And they'll see that fence and they'll say, hey, we not only should not get close to the road and and, and be, be good with being behind the fence in front of the sidewalk. We don't even want to get close to the sidewalk. So we're going to put up a fence in front of that fence to make sure we don't even get close to the sidewalk, which is close to the road. Out of our desire to want to abide by God's law, we can begin to build fences where God did not put a law. That's what legalism does. And when we start to get close to those fences, we can get so uncomfortable with those fences that we start building more and more and more fences. Now, here's the thing. I'm not talking about our church, of course. I'm talking about all the other churches in West Michigan. But the danger in legalism is that in a highly religious context like West Michigan is that we can actually train up our children to follow not God's law, but follow the fences that have come by way of tradition of men. God did not prohibit dancing. And while there are inappropriate contexts and places What we don't want to do is start to follow fences that we've put up and start to forbid people from doing things that God has not forbidden us to do. So now that everybody's really uncomfortable, the problem with legalism is it sees God's holiness and it makes him more harsh than he is. This started in the Garden of Eden. When when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree, Eve, when she was questioned by Satan, said, God told us not even to touch the tree. She had made God's law. She had taken God's law and she put a fence in front of it. This is what happens with legalism. And what happens with our kids when they're raised in legalistic contexts and legalistic homes is they will follow your rules until they get to a place where they recognize your rules are not God's rules. And what we are seeing consistently is that there are kids that are raised in legalistic contexts. They can't follow not God's word, not, not God's laws. They can't follow all of the fences that are put in front of them. So you know what they do? They throw the baby out with the bathwater and just get rid of the whole thing. When we force 
and compel legalism, and we build it in and we hardwire it into the context that we're in, we make God more harsh than he is. And we, we actually malign his holiness. Our God is holy, and yet he has given us the sacredness and the sanctity of marriage so much freedom. You think about that, the yard that's on the other side of that road. There's so much space to run freely. And yet what legalism will do is continue to put fence after fence after fence until people are boxed in. This is what Jesus came when he saw the Pharisees and all the traditions that had been put in place. He cut through all of them because he recognized they were not in accordance with the spirit of the law. They had built laws in and of themselves instead of simply understanding the spirit of the law and holding people to that. The dance that we're witnessing here is a piece of sacred romance that is found within marriage and blessed by God. That doesn't mean, once again, that every dance is appropriate outside of marriage, but it also doesn't mean that all dancing outside of marriage is thus off limits or forbidden. If anything, the Song of Solomon would confront those of us who may be by nature more prudish and may be more comfortable with building legalism, and it would confront us in order to understand that there are contexts which God has blessed. And the dance of Mahanaim is what we see happening right here. So step number one, what are we called to do? To delight in the dance of love, understanding that God has actually given us in Scripture a beautiful, powerful description of the freedom we can experience within marriage. Number two, step number two, delight in the sight of of your beloved. In verses one through four, we read his description of his bride. He says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel's like a rounded bull that never lacks mixed wine. He starts to use descriptive terms of objects that have this immense beauty and power. And what he's talking about is your body is crafted like, like, an, like a work of art. And that's what, he's, that's what he is telling his bride. When he sees her, he sees a work of art like jewels that have been turned by a master hand. He says, your navel is like a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Now, I gotta be honest with you. When I first read this, that your navel is like a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, I thought a, a bowl is, could be fairly, unless Solomon is taking a communion cup, right? Like a thimble. Perhaps she has been very blessed. Her, she, has, she has a blessed portion, okay? Her cup runneth over, right? So when I'm first reading this, I'm like a bull. I don't know if I'd want to say, oh, your belly button is like a bull. It's like, I don't know if that's going to, yeesh, like what kind of bull, you know? But, but here's actually what's happening. And again, I'm going to continue to just press against perhaps some of us who are uncomfortable with this kind of conversation in church. The word navel here is actually a metaphor. And the metaphor, again, if we work from the sandal, from the feet up to the thighs, the navel comes before the belly. And I don't need to use anatomical language here to describe exactly what he's talking about, but there is a sweetness that he is describing and a wine that is intoxicating that he's talking about here in the navel that for us should push against us to think about how we speak. There are metaphors throughout the Song of Solomon that again are anatomically very rich and descriptive. And I've, I have been 
very discreet in the ways that I've actually approached them. But there are many commentators who don't have the same discretion. And linguistically speaking, they don't need to. But the, the, the power of the poetry is that while this might be a preaching minefield for guys like me, and I just want you to think about for a second, right? I never thought in seminary that I would ever have to say the word breasts as many times as I've said it from the pulpit, okay? So if you think you're uncomfortable hearing it out there, I have to say it, right? It's like my, my daughter is asking me, do I really have to go into service again? Do I really have to go? You're going to say weird words. And I'm going to be sitting there like, oh, that's my dad, right? But, but here's the thing. If we as Christians who not only know the truth, but have the truth, don't speak the truth, what do you think is going to happen in society? I think we're kind of seeing it. Jesus said we're supposed to be light. He's the light of the world, and, and he abides in us, and then we are the light unto the world, pointing to him. But he also said we're supposed to be the salt as well. Salt is a preservative. It's meant to preserve morality wherever it is. That's what the illustration that Jesus is using. So if we look at society and see where it is, maybe as Christians, it's not that we are, are talking too much about sex or being too clear about sex. Maybe it's that we just don't talk about it at all. That's a problem. As I mentioned earlier in this Song of Solomon series, I'll say it again now. It's not that we have a right to talk about sex and sexuality. As the ones who are reading God's word, which is given to us, as the ones who are the pillar and buttress of truth, which is what the church is, we don't just have a right to talk about sex and sexuality. We have the only right to talk about sex and sexuality. To hold high the vision of marriage, and like Hebrews 13.5 calls us to hold high the marriage bed in honor, in high honor. So as we walk through this passage, we read of this navel that's a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. He is describing his wife anatomically in poetry that is beautiful and wonderful and discreet. But make no mistake, we as believers have the ability and the right to speak into that and to call all of those who are lost and confused about sex and sexuality to what God has made clear in his word for his people. He next describes her belly as a heap of wheat. And if we think about this for a second, they would bundle together the wheat in what's called a sheave. And the, as they brought the sheaf together, they would grab a, a belt and they would tie it together. And so what he's describing is this sheaf that has an hourglass-like figure. And he is describing his wife in, in all that she is, in all of her beauty. And th th then he describes what? Again, the two breasts that are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. I spoke about this already. And I would encourage you to go back. The phrase, the takeaway phrase was, don't spook the fawns, all right? So if you haven't listened to that message, go back and listen to that message. He describes her neck once again in this, in this poem. He says, it's like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bat-Rabim. Bat now, here's the thing. We don't have a ton of clarity on what pool he's, he's exactly talking about. 
But what we do have clarity on is that her eyes drew him in in such a way that he was willing and wanting to bathe in this pool. They drew him in. They were deep. They were dreaming. He's using descriptive language that describes his delight in the sight of his beloved. What is he describing? She's a work of art. But then he says something interesting. And, and, and we have to talk about this for a second. He says, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which look, looks toward Damascus. What is this describing? Standards of beauty change over time. He's saying your, your nose is like a tower. Apparently she's got a honker of a schnoz, all right? <laughs> Just, you know, what is it, Cyrenac? Sir, was, yeah, you, that guy. Pinocchio, okay? That's a lot easier one that we can get. But here's, here's, what, here's what's coming out of the text, right? He is delighting in all that she is. And here's what we need to recognize, guys. He delights in the sight of his beloved. And here's what you need to recognize about your wife, your bride. She is your standard of beauty. She's your standard of, be- of beauty. When we think about uh, how our lives go and what our world actually wants to do, when we think about aging, gaining weight, there is a temptation to look at what the world says is attractive and to allow a false standard to be put over your standard. Let me say it again. Your wife is your standard of beauty. Making your wife that standard of beauty is a choice. And here's what I see. There are too many men who have been caught up in pornography for such a long time that you have this idea of a clickable infatuation that somehow you can just change features at the click of a button. And this is like the Mrs. Potato Head idea that I talk about with some some guys that I talk about, about their pornography addiction. You will ruin your ability to actually have your wife be your standard of beauty because you are trying to compare her with an absolutely impossible standard. That is an impossible standard. And if you have in your mind visions and ideas and images, you will have this clickable infatuation with novelty that once again is impossible for any one woman to fulfill. Making your wife the standard means choosing to look away. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There was a group of guys that uh, I, my freshman year of college, after I had come back, we were all in church together and we started doing ministry together and we were accountability partners together And oftentimes, whether it was a a, a billboard that we would see or a tabloid in a a grocery mart or, or just walking down the road, some temptation would come. And I remember there was a reflex. We began to kind of train one another in accountability about having eye discipline. We would just look at one another and say, how about them Seahawks? How about them Seahawks? Change the subject and choosing to look away is a discipline. It is a discipline that we practice in order to honor God firstly and honor our wife secondly. That's a choice that you have to make, that you would choose to look away. You also have to choose to capture your thoughts. You don't need to see anything. As guys, we have enough going on in our own minds. 
And here's what 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. When, when thoughts come into our mind, we may not be able to control them coming to mind, but we can control what we do with them once they are in our mind. And Paul says here, you have to take them captive. Now, years ago, uh, I got a phone call. I was in Holland. I got a phone call from my wife, Andrea. She said, "Hun, something was on the roof and we're in the basement and something fell down the chimney. I know it. And you know where the pipe is that comes in from the chimney? Yeah, something's in there. And I don't know what it is, but we're freaking out. So I got in my car and I zipped down Chicago Drive. I would win the speed limit the whole time. And we got home. I got home and I ran downstairs and there used to be a wood burning stove and we took that out. And so there was just a pipe that would stick out of the wall coming in, into the house. And I had put a couple of towels and then like put a cap on there. And I'm sitting and I'm looking and she's like, do you hear it? I'm like, no. And then all of a sudden I started to hear some scratching and I saw the little cap moving. Boom, boom, boom. Something was trying to get out. And so I was like, all right, I got to get something that I can like capture it. You know, I got to like, so I got a bin thinking I'm going to get this thing, whatever it is. And then as I went to go pull the cap off, I was like, you know what? I should get something like hard. So I went and got a stick. I was like, I'm going to beat this thing. You know, like whatever it is, I went and got a broomstick and I took the broom head off. And I'm like, I'm going to get it, you know? So I put those two items down and I pull the cap off and I start removing the towels that kind of were like insulation or whatever. And as soon as I got the towels out, I look, and these two beady little eyes, I'm like, it's super dark in there. And I'm leaning in, and all of a sudden, like, uh, like out of a cannon, this squirrel comes flying out of my face. <laughs> Boom. And I duck, and this thing starts sprinting around the room, like in the basement, just sh- sh- all over the place. And I forgot about the bin. I forgot about the, I was just, my girls were all yelling, right? And I think I was yelling louder than them at this point. And so I'm like trying to get this thing. I like trying to grab the bin. That's not working. So then I'm like, we got to get this thing out of the house. So Andrea throws open the door and I run upstairs to throw open the other door. And I'm like chasing this thing out with a stick. It finally gets out of the house, right? And I turn around, I look at Andrea and we just died laughing. It's like, (laughs) but here's the thing. Some of us have these squirrel-like thoughts running around in our house and we never consider, we never consider that we should be the ones that are getting them out of the, the, the house, of our head. If you have images and thoughts, things that you're thinking that are not godly or good, you need to take those thoughts captive. Solomon sees his bride and he is able to delight in her. He has seen her as the standard of beauty and his words are reinforcing the fact that she is his standard of beauty. And when we consider our lives and how we live to honor God, you gotta choose to look away in order to see your wife as the standard of beauty. And you have to choose to capture your thoughts if you want to see your wife consistently as your standard of beauty. The world's standards come and go, but your standard, if you are married, your standard is your wife. Step number three, we are to delight in the dignity of difference. Verses five and six, he describes her hair in a new way. He says, your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Previously, we've seen him describe her hair in different ways. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats previously. And now he's changing it. 
He's saying, your head adorns you. It sits on top of you like Mount Carmel, and your flowing locks are, are like purple. He's talking about how her locks are royal, they're regal, they're powerful, they're beautiful. And this is him maturing in his love. First difference we can see here is the difference between young love and mature love. Our view of our wives and of our spouses should grow over time to be richer and deeper and fuller. The depth of love you have is real and true when you're younger, but as you grow in age together, it is deeper and stronger. And that's what this is reflecting. He talked previously about how her neck was like the Tower of David, and what that was resembling was that it was impenetrable. It was unassailable. It was unapproachable, like a defensive tower. But here he says that her neck is like an ivory tower. His image is changing because as they're maturing and growing in their love, the way he envisions and sees her beauty is also changing and deepening. If you think about a defensive tower versus a tower of ivory, it changes from one that he has already been able to enter into, and now it's seen as beautiful and powerful. If you think about a sculpture of ivory and how it's pleasing to the eye, that's what, how he is describing her now. And here he is now talking not only in, in these kinds of terms that show a maturing of their relationship, but then he talks about how they're different. He says, your flowing locks are like purple. Listen, the second difference we can see, and there's a dignity and a power in it, is this. Men and women are different. Men and women are different. And I know in 2024, this might be controversial to say, even in the church, which is actually sad to me, men and women are different. And God has created men and women as different for his glory and for our good. We've been looking at this affection that's grown from a boy and a girl to maturing, and now they're husband and wife. The Bible doesn't just assume binary. It actually instructs us that there are only two, not genders, two sexes, two genders together. It is male and female, man and woman. That is it. That's all the Bible instructs us in. There is nothing outside of that, nothing beyond that. The debate actually, there isn't one. It's actually over. God made male and female, and he called them very good. That's it. And the goodness that we see is that in this relationship, God has called us to complement one another. Men are called to live into their masculinity and women into their femininity. And in our relationship together, we complement one another, which brings God glory because that's how he made us. When we look at how the scripture handles this image and this idea of the woman's hair. We see in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians where Paul is actually talking to the church in Corinth. And he says that the glory of man is woman and that the glory of the woman is her hair. You see, Paul actually makes an argument from nature. He argues from what is clearly seen in creation. And he describes the power and the beauty in this sign and this symbol of authority in the covering of hair of a woman. So it doesn't, it doesn't confuse me or rattle me at all that gals, not all the time, but from time to time, fuss about their hair. You think about designer. It's you have a great designer who has created you in beauty. 
And there is beauty in gals taking time to do their hair. You think about how important it is for a bride to have her hair done just right for the wedding. If you want to figure out, right, you want to talk about seeing this in action, walk past the bathroom in the morning when a gal's getting ready and having a bad hair day. Their hair matters to them. And as a dad of four daughters, I could tell you, it matters to them. I can tell when my girls are having bad hair days. And all of my drains in my house are clogged, like all the time, all right? And the little vacuum bar, I'm cutting the hair on that all the time. Can I get an amen from some of the dads in here? You know what I'm saying, all right? They care about their hair. My son, on the other hand, has got a mullet, and when he walks out of the house in the morning, he doesn't care. He'll look like buckwheat sometimes. And I'm like, bro, you better get back inside and take care of that alfalfa haircut. You know what I'm saying? Men and women are different, distinct. God didn't do that by accident. He did it intentionally. He did it intentionally for his glory. What does it say here? Your flowing locks are like purple. There is this royal dignity that is bestowed upon women that is different from men. It's different for a reason. There is a dignity in femininity and there is a power in femininity. Gals, even as much as your husband is called to make you the standard of beauty, so you too are called to live into the dignity of your difference as being distinct and different from man. What I see happening in our culture today, and even in the church, is that there is not only the elevation of equality and value, which is good and right between men and women, but there is the equaling, meaning men and women are no different. Everything you can do, I can do better, is the old saying. God has given us differences for a reason, and he has also given us different roles for a reason. When we embrace all that he has designed us for, we bring honor and dignity to those differences. When we look at Song of Solomon, we see Solomon talking to the Shulamite, a husband pursuing his wife. This is what God has called good and godly. He looks at his bride and he delights in her. Look at verse six. He says, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. When we call gals to live into this femininity, here's another thing we need to recognize. You don't need to try to attain to some unrealistic standard that's been placed upon you by the culture. Your ultimate goal in your life is to glorify God with your distinction, with your femininity and dignity. Look at what Proverbs 31:30 says. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The highest praise that your husband could ever give you has nothing to do with your physical features. It has, everything with, has, it has everything to do with your heart before the Lord. You make me a better follower of Jesus. You call me up to the man that I'm called to be. We have the ability to delight in the dignity of the differences that God has built in. And we see this in how he celebrates and praises all of her differences. Step number four, delighting in intimacy. In verses seven through 10, 
He talks about her stature once again. He talks about her breasts being like clusters. He talks about her being like a palm tree. And he says, I'm going to climb up and I'm going to lay hold of its fruit. This dance has gotten to a place where he reaches a fever pitch. And as he's describing her and watching her dance, he's getting excited about it. And then he changes. Previously, we've only ever seen him describe and then her invite. This is the first time where we see him say, here I come. This is the place where like a captain turning off the seatbelt sign, it would say you are free to move about the cabin. He goes from describing her like this palm tree to turning into Tarzan. He's like, I'm about to come into the tree. Here we go. Here's what I want to just submit to you once again. As I read through this, I was like, oh man, how am I going to teach through this passage? This is like, here's the word that I thought. Gratuitous. Is this really necessary? God thought so. He didn't just think so. He actually, by the power of his spirit, led Solomon to write this. And then he preserved it for our reading. We have talked multiple times about how all of this is truly pointing to this horizontal nature of relationship, that there is freedom in the ways that we express our love to one another. But consistently, behind the background of all the songs that are sung, there is a song of love that comes from beyond time. And and, and in all of the intimacy we see here, it points forward to an intimate and powerful love that God actually himself, although it's not the same kind of love, it's a different kind of love, it's actually deeper and truer, and it points to this intimacy of Jesus coming to save his bride and to purify her whom he loves and gave himself for. That is the fulfillment of all of this depiction. It comes in Christ Jesus. Lastly, in the, first, in the final few verses between 11 and 13, we see them again, delight in dating. This is the step number five of maturing love is to date. We've talked multiple times about getting away and dating and how it's a rhythm that's to be enforced, and it's because we've seen it consistently. Come away with me, come away with me, come away with me. Here's what we know. Dating increases the depth of joy and the breadth of stability in your relationship. Dating increases the depth of joy and the breadth of stability in your relationship. In 2022, a study was conducted through the University of of Virginia, which found that couples who dated regularly were 15% more likely to to report being very happy. Not just happy, but very happy. Those same exact couples reported that they were also 15% more likely than other couples to say that divorce was not at all likely. Not at all. Dating increases the depth of joy and the breadth of stability in our relationships. And if we think about it, for some of you who might be out of habit of following that rhythm consistently, this is laid up for you, that you would have this to follow. We need to get our date game underway. If you haven't been dating, consider redating your spouse. If you've fallen off, consider restarting. Dating is something that we see consistently throughout this book. And again, it increases the depth of joy and the breadth of our stability. Once again, when we think about the gospel and how we see this in the entire book, and we see this in this chapter, here's the Christ connection for us. When when we read that Solomon delights in his spouse, it talks about the delights and the pleasures that he's experiencing. But this is the reason why sex and sex and marriage is so deep and so sensitive to us is because it touches at the heart of pleasure and delight. 
And in scripture, it was the love of God that drove him to send his son Jesus for us, whom he delighted in. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 147.11 says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. John Piper, in talking about our delight and God's delight in us, says, at its root, what God delights in about us is that we would delight in him. You see, we are invited to enjoy a relationship with Jesus, who is himself the lover of our souls, who has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises that in him, our hearts will find our desires fulfilled. And so we're called to take delight in him. And as we do, he takes pleasure in us. Isaiah 62.5 explains this perfectly. It says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, that's God, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, which we've just been reading through, so will your God rejoice over you. When we consider the horizontal plane and how we're to love one another, we have perfect steps that are laid out for us here and what we're called to delight in. That there are steps that we can take to delight in our relationship and the sacredness of our marriage. And yet at the bottom of it all, at the heart of everything is the fact that our souls were made to be loved by God and that God loved us by sending his own son to die for us, to purify us and to sanctify us that one day he would call his bride home, pure for himself. There's a quote that says this, Dear soul, do you realize the desire of your beloved towards you? You love him, but he loves you ever so much more. You desire him, but his desire towards you is as much greater than yours towards him. As sunlight is more brilliant than moonlight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you delighted in your son. And because of that, when we have new life in him, you take delight in us. Lord, help us to fear you. Help us to please you with how we live for you, God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these steps that we might be able to see within our marriages, within our relationships, with our spouses, the beauty and the power of this sacred garden of romance and love flourish and thrive. Lord, we pray that you would give us the right words to be able to bless, that you would give us, Lord, the ability to show grace and extend grace, that you would give us, Lord, the courage and the strength to be able to see our spouse as the standard of beauty. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for us. We pray this all in your mighty name. And all God's people said.